Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 32 begins with a statement. If we take away the opening word since and the closing question, and you have this statement, we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ without any merit of our own. That statement catches neatly and concisely the glorious gospel we've confessed in the previous Lord's Days. The gospel of salvation by grace alone. The emphasis lies on the word alone. The Lord has granted us forgiveness of sins and life eternal without any contribution from our side. Free grace. That reality automatically prompts the question about good works. If forgiveness of sins and peace with God are God's gifts of grace, freely granted to us, without contribution from our side, why must we yet do good works? They contribute nothing, so why bother with them? Actually, the question is a bit stronger. The question is not, why ought we yet to do good works? The question is, why must we yet do good works? It's an obligation, a duty. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, that can raise our hackles somewhat. After all, salvation is free by grace alone. Back in Lord's Day 24, question and answer 64, we confess that good works cannot but follow God's gift of salvation as expressions of gratitude. Is it then not overdone to speak in Lord's Day 32 of must? No, brothers and sisters. The duty of our Lord's Day is part and parcel of the grace of Jesus Christ. We must do good works because Christ in grace has renewed us. Once we see that point, two blessed results follow, one with regards to ourselves and one with respect to our neighbor. I summarize the sermon with this theme. Christ's grace makes us do good works. We'll see the divine cause of good works, the personal comfort of good works, the neighborly benefit of good works. First then, the divine cause of good works. The gospel of deliverance through the blood of Jesus Christ comes at no cost to us. It is by grace alone. But how far, brothers and sisters, does grace extend? What is caught under the concept of grace? Grace. We hear in the term the notion that the Lord Jesus Christ has shed his blood for sinners. With his self-sacrifice on Calvary, our sins are washed away, so we are righteous before God. It's the material we confessed in previous Lord's Days. We can look at Lord's Day 23. God freely imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ so that he sees me as without sin. Or we can look at holy baptism in Lord's Day 26 and 27. As water washes away dirt from the body, so Christ's blood washes away the dirt of my soul. It's also the gospel driven home in Lord's Supper, Lord's Day 28. The bread and wine signify the broken body and shed blood from the Savior. He gave his blood to ransom us from Satan's power and return us to God as his children and heirs. Freely, by grace, our sins are washed away so that we are righteous before God and have peace with God. That's what we call justification. This gospel of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ is the gospel of grace. But the thing is, this gospel is not the sum total it's only one aspect of God's gracious work. 
You see, God in the beginning created us to be perfect, alive, able to image him. With the fall into sin and our joining Satan, we died, became so depraved that we were able only to sin. That is, instead of imaging the Lord, we imaged Satan, our destroyer. With our fall in paradise, we provoked God's wrath. With our continuing daily sins, we continue to provoke his wrath. In his grace, the Lord God, through Jesus' blood, ransomed us from Satan's bondage and returned us to God's side so that we're righteous before him and have forgiveness of sins. But does the Savior leave us dead in sin? Does he take us as spiritual carcasses back from Satan's side to God's side and let us to continue to be dead in sin? No, brothers and sisters, he does not. In Ephesians, Paul, it's, in Ephesians, Paul says, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Notice we were dead, but God in Christ made us alive. Becoming alive again is not our work, but God's work. Just as much as paying for sin is not our work, but God's work. More, this being made alive is, says Paul, distinctly God's grace. The apostle says in Ephesians 2 that by grace you have been saved. But in this case, he isn't referring to the work of Christ in shedding his blood to make us righteous before God. Instead, his reference is to the work of the Lord in regenerating us, making us alive again. It needs to be fixed in our minds. God's grace in Christ is not just that our sins are forgiven, that we are taken back from Satan's side to God's side. That's only half the picture. God's grace in Christ is also that we are changed and made alive. That's what we call sanctification. Justification and sanctification, both are God's work in us. Both are his gifts of grace for us and in us. Allow me an illustration to clarify. Imagine that you're a car buff. You've got very sweet memories of a 1968 Camaro. You'd love to drive one again. You find one, but the engine has long since ceased. The mice have long ago ruined the seats. The windows are smashed. It's an empty body. It's an automotive carcass. It's dead. But you pay the price so that this wreck of a Camaro is now yours. You bring the thing home. You park it in your shed. It's yours. That's justification. Though we were spiritual carcasses, Christ paid the price for us and brought us home. Yet we all understand you didn't buy the car in order to leave it in your shed as a wreck. The buying is the one half of the story. The other half is that you want to restore it. You want to make it look new again. Drive it again. That, beloved, is sanctification. The other half of God's grace in Christ. He not only bought us, he also restores us and makes us alive again. The two are different, but you can't separate them. As buying the car without restoring it is a job half done, so justification without sanctification would be a job half done. Grace is the whole package. Since grace is both, a consequence follows. When I speak about this 68 Camaro, we all understand that buying the wreck does not mean that the wreck is instantly restored or drivable again. That can take months of hard work. Indeed, it's possible that car could sit in our shed for years before we got around to restoring it. But the renewing work of our Lord Jesus Christ 
occurs at the same time as is delivering us from Satan's power. You can look again at Ephesians 2. God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Notice here the tense the apostle uses. We were dead and now are made alive. Being alive is a present reality, says Paul. It's not something that the Lord will do to us when he has time someday down the track. The apostle says the same thing in Romans 6. Shall we, he asks in verse 1, continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not, he answers, and then gives us an explanation, as explanation, the fact that we already have newness of life. Verse 11, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed with respect to sin, but alive with respect to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The renewing and restoring work of the Lord is not something for the future, but it's something we receive at the same time as we are made righteous in Jesus' blood. We say of ourselves that we are righteous before God and have forgiveness of our sins. That's the statement we make in question and answer 86. But then, beloved, we also have to dare say the second half. We need also to acknowledge that we are new creatures, spiritually alive. It is the emphasis of Scripture. Those who are righteous before God through Jesus' blood are also renewed through his Spirit. You can't separate the two. And so you must dare to acknowledge both as being true for ourselves. Now, I'm not saying anything new. We can look back to Lord's Day 26. We were all baptized. Then it says, How does holy baptism signify and seal to you that the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross benefits you? And the answer, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away the impurity of my soul that is all my sin. Notice the reference here to both Christ's blood and his spirit. Hence the next question. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? That first part, to be washed with Christ's blood, is easy enough. In answer 70, it says, to be washed with Christ's blood means to receive forgiveness of sins from God through grace because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. That's the matter of justification, being righteous, having forgiveness of sins through Christ's blood. But that second part, to be washed with his spirit, what does that mean? So answer 70 says further, to be washed with his spirit means to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ so that more and more we become dead to sin and lead a holy and blameless life. Notice, to be washed with Christ's spirit is a notion of being renewed, being made alive or restored. No, the restoration is not perfect. We're not a brand new Camaro again. But we are restored nevertheless. That, beloved, is how we need to see ourselves. We must look at ourselves not simply as persons who are righteous before God and forgiven of our sins on account of Christ's blood. We must see ourselves as changed, as renewed, through the work of Jesus' spirit. So we can come back to the the question from the beginning. Why must we do good works? Is the must not overdone? Not too strong a word? No, beloved. Christ has done a work in us. He's restored us through his Holy Spirit. And so we need to make a point of acting restored. Restored. 
And here's where the analogy with the Camaro falls apart. No matter how you've restored your car, it still can't do anything. You have to drive it. But a restored sinner can do something. God created us in the beginning with the responsibility to image him. And despite our fall into sin, God has continued to hold us to that responsibility. Now that God has renewed us through his Holy Spirit, we are made able to carry out again the responsibility God gave us in the beginning. And therefore, we have the duty to act out according to that responsibility. That's the instruction of the apostle in Romans 6, verse 12. You are alive to God in Christ Jesus. And therefore, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. The command not to let sin be boss in your life falls consistently on the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. You're made alive, then you must do good works. Is it a burden to do good works? No, it's not a burden, but sin does remain in us and keeps encouraging us to act according to the will of the flesh. There is a struggle involved here, indeed. And that's exactly why we need to have our responsibility in the matter laid out before us time and again. We must do good works simply because Christ has renewed us. We must do good works and so show our gratitude for the grace God has given us. And that brings us to our second point, the personal comfort of good works. Our Lord's Day mentions a second reason why we are to do good works, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits. The key word here is assured. Yet the assurance is not about whether there actually is a God in heaven, nor about whether the Bible is really true. In the catechism, it is the believer who speaks. And so the existence of God and the truth of his word is implied. But in the life of the true believer, there remains from time to time those moments of doubt. The fine point of the doubt is this. Are my sins really forgiven? Notice, the question is not whether I believe that God forgives sins in general. The question is whether God actually forgives my sins. It's something with which every one of us at some time or other struggles. We recall a particularly evil deed on our part. Or we experience some calamity in our lives. Or we approach the day of death. And the question floods over us. Are my sins really forgiven? Does God actually see me as righteous? It's in that context that the catechism speaks of being assured of our faith by its fruits. How does this work? Well, let's go back to the Camaro. The fact that the Camaro rolls out of your garage, all restored and sparkling, says something about the car's ownership. You don't spend hours and hours restoring what you have not bought in the first place. More, the restoration demonstrates what you think of that Camaro. This machine is your pride and joy. It's the same for us as Christians. Because of our fall into sin, we once belonged to Satan and were his property. With the price of his precious blood, our, our Savior bought us and freed us from Satan's power, returned us to God, so that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God. And the proof that he bought us? This. He restored us. He has given us his spirit to change us, to renew us, and to make us alive again. For Christ does not renew those whom he has not ransomed. Do you want proof then that you really belong to Christ? 
have forgiveness of sins, are righteous before God? The evidence lies in the renewal of your life. It lies in the fact that you are alive to God, that you do good works. Those good works, they provide assurance that you really belong to God. By the fruits you produce, the good works you do, you receive assurance of your faith. No, that doesn't mean we have to look for perfect fruit in ourselves. A peach with a scab isn't perfect, but it's still a peach. And it's evidence that the tree in question is truly a peach tree. The works we do are far from perfect, but by the grace of the Lord, they are good works nevertheless, and therefore evidence of what kind of tree we are. So while we pursue perfection, we need not achieve perfection in ourselves before we can conclude that we are restored by the Holy Spirit and therefore also washed by Jesus' blood. That conclusion, brothers and sisters, has a second side to it. What about those members of the church who have made profession of faith, attend the table of the Lord, or maybe even esteemed members of the church community who fail to produce good works? Or what about those whose external behavior conforms to God's revealed will, but they live a life of secret sin? Here's where question and answer 87 comes in. It says such persons are ungrateful. Though the Lord comes to them with the promises of the gospel, be it in the sacrament of baptism in their infancy or the preaching Sunday by Sunday, or even the sacrament of Holy Supper from time to time, they do not demonstrate that they've been restored by the Holy Spirit, and therefore they may not conclude that the Lord has redeemed them with his blood. Since they've not been redeemed, they remain in bondage to Satan and therefore are not saved. That's answer 87. No unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, greedy person, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like shall inherit the kingdom of God. The fruits of renewal are external only. The evidence of being restored through the work of the Holy Spirit can turn out to be but a veneer covering up a love for sin. And therefore one cannot claim to be redeemed by Jesus' blood. So there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no peace with God. Justification and sanctification, though two different things, cannot be separated. That is why there would be a need for repentance. And here is a warning for all of us. Question and answer 87 does not speak in first instance about unbelievers, those outside the church, who live in their sins. Question and answer 87 speaks, first of all, about us inside the church, people who have tasted the goodness of God but remain ungrateful for God's gifts. So we need to examine ourselves. Am I an unchaste person? Do I live with sins like pornography or adultery in my life? Am I an idolater by placing my trust in my money or my talents to carry me through my troubles? Do I skim company profits for myself or find other ways to be a thief? Do I insist on more and more comforts for myself? Am I a greedy person? Do I need my drink before I go to bed? Am I a drunkard? Do I pass on twisted or damaging information about others? Am I a slanderer? We don't tend to like self-examination, but it's so important. We do good works so that we can be assured of our faith by its fruits, but the argument does cut the other way too. Where we do good works in public but keep secret sins on the side, the public may draw one conclusion, but we shall have to draw the other one and repent before it's too late. We come to our last point, the neighborly benefit of good works. 
Our Lord today mentions briefly a third reason why we must do good works. The third must is driven by concern for the neighbor. In the world in which we live, there are so few people who are eager to hear the gospel. Most have chosen not to go to church and chosen not to read a Bible. Yet these people will not be saved unless they come to faith in Jesus Christ. If they are not open to hearing about the gospel, how shall they come to know the gospel? This is the concern of the last part of answer 86, that by our godly walk of life, we may win our neighbors for Christ. We read that passage from 1 Peter 3. The passage addresses wives who have come to faith, but their husbands have not. The instruction of the apostle is this, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct. That wives be submissive to their own husbands is a command of scripture for all times and places. Doing good works includes that we obey the law of the Lord. By doing good works, by being submissive to her husband, the believing wife shows her unbelieving and hostile husband not just that she's the property of Jesus Christ, but also that her Savior has renewed her. Demonstrating that we are restored and no longer living in sin is a powerful argument for an unbeliever to think again about the value of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit uses our outward walk, our way of life, our good works to lead people to Christ. Our good works can spark the curiosity of unbelievers. Why do you live this way? Why do you speak that way? What makes you different? Those questions can give you opportunities to speak about the gospel of Christ to witness for your Savior. We do want that, don't we? We want to win our neighbors to Christ because we care about them. We want to see them with the joy and peace we have now and we want to see them in the new creation later. Most of all, we want to see them honoring our God with us instead of dishonoring him with their sinful lives. We're saved by grace without contribution from our side. And this fact makes good works both possible and required. The Lord wants us to be what we are. And the consequence is rich. We can live lives in Christ's image to his praise. We can be assured that we really belong to our faithful Savior. And our neighbor may come to see the power and love of the great restorer. Amen.